Hmm. I think we'll find various points of uh, contact with uh, the talk that uh, Professor Fox has just given as well, but I'll leave you to, to spot those. Um, so again, it could be a very short talk, is everything relative? Uh, no. But I'll expand on that by reflecting upon the differences between uh, a pre-modern worldview, uh, modernism as a worldview, and how that uh, relates to and how actually modernism actually when you uh, try and uh, think deeply about it and be consistent with a modernist worldview, how that actually pushes you towards postmodernism. Uh, once upon a time, as it were, we uh, reflected upon ourselves and our place in the universe in, in, the, in a pre-modern worldview mirror. And we asked, if you like, uh, the famous fairy tale question, uh, who is the fairest of them all? And that pre-modern mirror gave us an answer something like this. God is the fairest of them all, the maximally beautiful being. But God created the cosmos, and he made humanity in his image only a little lower than the angels. And in such a worldview, where you believe in a creator who's made a rational uh, universe uh, that reflects its creator in some ways, and who has made humanity in his image you not only uh, have grounds for an expectation that humanity will be able to understand something of their creator, even if they can't comprehend their creator, they can nonetheless understand their creator, and also that they would be able to understand something of the intelligibility of the creation around them. And that, of course, gives you a solid foundation for doing science, as Professor Fox was saying. So Alvin Plantinga puts it this way, he says, modern science arose within the bosom of Christian theism. It's a shining example of the powers of reason with which God has created us. It's a spectacular display of the image of God in us human beings. So Christians are committed to taking science and the deliverances of contemporary science with the utmost seriousness. And then one day, we decided to throw off the shackles of that pre-modern worldview, and we looked into a modernist worldview mirror, and we asked the question, who is the fairest of them all? And the modernist worldview mirror said something like this, according to science, which is the only way to know anything, man is the fairest of them all, although an unverifiable value term like fair is merely an expression of emotion. The most rational being to have arisen via the blind watchmaker of Darwinian evolution, a child of Mother Nature who has finally come of age and rejected the childish superstitions of religion. And Nancy Piercy, in her wonderful book, Saving Leonardo, I think puts her finger on a, on a vital point when she says that the, the strict separation of facts from values that is part of that modernist worldview is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. She says, people have always known that there's a distinction between is and ought, between descriptive statements and normative statements. In earlier ages, in a pre-modern worldview, however, people thought that both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. 
if you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, it, that moral statement, was either true or false. And within a modernist worldview, that goes by the wayside. You end up with a distinction between facts, which are public, objective, universal, and discovered by naturalistic science, and values, and talk about meaning and purpose and so on, which are private and subjective and relative and invented by us human beings or by our cultures. Now that distinction, which I would say is a false distinction between facts and values, I think there are facts about values, is uh, something that uh, has been sustained in different ways within modernism. Within the early 20th century, it was sustained by the idea that value propositions are meaningless and the whole sort of AJR logical positivism school of thinking. Later on, that morphs into the sort of new atheist way of thinking uh, where the idea of that value propositions uh, are not meaningless precisely, but they're, they're just false. They're just silly questions, as Peter Atkins says. Why questions are silly questions. And then one day, some people at least, looked into a post-modernist worldview mirror and asked the question, who is the fairest of them all? And post-modernism said something along these lines. Although words only mean whatever they mean to you, I'd say that if I can get my colleagues to let me get away with saying that I'm the fairest of them all, then I am the fairest of them all. After all, values are merely subjective concepts programmed into the human animal by the blind watchmaker of evolution, which only cares about what works and which doesn't care about truth any more than it cares about goodness or beauty. Why should we care about truth? We must keep faith with Darwin and admit that all we can know is the subjective meaning of our own words. Uh, there's a lot of quotations from postmodernists buried within that summation. So the French philosopher Jean-François Loyotard famously characterized postmodernism as an incredulity towards meta-narratives or big stories of existence. Of course, that's his meta-narrative that we should have such an incredulity. William Lane Craig uh, says that the idea that we live in a postmodern culture, which many people say, you know, we live in postmodern times, that actually is a myth. He says a postmodern culture is an impossibility. Uh, it would be utterly unlivable. That point about, you know, show me a postmodernist at 20,000 feet in an aircraft. Uh, nobody, you know, English literature professors might read Shakespeare as if texts have no inherent meaning and the author is dead, but they sure don't read the instructions on the medicine bottle in that way, for obvious reasons. So uh, Craig says people are not relativistic when it comes to matters of science or engineering or technology. Rather, they're relativistic in matters of religion and ethics. But of course, that is not postmodernism. That's modernism. That's just old line verificationism, the old line distinction between facts and values. We live in a culture that remains deeply modernist 
And I think Craig has a good point, up to a point. Um, J.P. Morland, in a recent essay, writes about four degrees of postmodernism, starting with uh, axiological value-denying postmodernism, which is a sort of backed up by a sort of scientific view of knowledge, sort of verificationistic type modernism, which you might want to label as a sort of shallow form of postmodernism. But then there are deeper forms of postmodernism that at least some people claim to espouse whether or not they live consistently with it. Uh, the same thing could be said for this. Um, but there is a, a knowledge-denying form of postmodernism, a truth-denying form of postmodernism, even a reality-denying depth of postmodernism. Well, I've mentioned Alex Rosenberg in, in previous talks, but uh, it's well worth reminding ourselves that Alex Rosenberg in his book The Atheist's Guide to Reality does, I think, a really excellent job of arguing why it, we, it is the case that, that no chunk of matter can just by itself be about another chunk of matter, that material things can't have the property that philosophers of mind call intentionality or aboutness. One clump of matter, says Rosenberg, can't be about another clump of matter. But if, my, if materialism is true and my mind just is matter... Where does that leave us? If purely physical realities can't have thoughts about anything, then of course they can't have true thoughts about anything. Including thoughts about the nature of our thinking and whether or not our thinking is just material. Bertrand Russell um, put it this way in The Problems of Philosophy. He says, if we imagine a world of mere matter, there would be no room for falsehood in such a world. And although it would contain what may be called facts, it would not contain any truths. A world of mere matter, since it would contain no beliefs or statements, would also contain no truth or falsehood. Or the atheist Richard Rorty, a, a prime postmodernist philosopher, so this, the idea that one species of organism is, unlike all the others, orientated not just towards its own increased propensity, but towards truth, with a capital T, is as un-Darwinian as the idea that every human being has a built-in moral compass. So there's Rorty saying, actually, if you take a materialistic view of the person... Not only do you make value statements subjective, but you can't actually objectively sustain that modernist distinction between facts and values. Atheist John Gray says to think of science as the search for truth is to renew a mystical faith. That truth rules the world, that truth is divine. Modern humanism is the faith that through science... Humankind can know the truth and so be set free. But if Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, this is impossible. The human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. To think otherwise is to resurrect the pre-Darwinian error that humans are different from all other animals. And in a recent uh, article uh, in the New Republic in October 2014, 
uh, Gray said, a rigorously naturalistic account of the human mind entails a much more sceptical view of human knowledge than is commonly acknowledged. And he said that in, in the context of critiquing the new atheism. New atheist Sam Harris in The Moral Landscape says, our logical, mathematical and physical intuitions have not been designed by natural selection to track the truth. <coughs> Atheist philosopher of mind Patricia Churchland famously argued that the principal chore of nervous systems is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth definitely takes the hindmost, she argues. But if truth takes the hindmost on a materialistic, modernistic view of human beings, how can naturalists be confident about the truth of naturalism? <coughs> Indeed, atheist philosopher of mind Thomas Nagel in his recent book Mind and Cosmos argues that an evolutionary naturalism, and the emphasis here is on the naturalism, not the evolutionary bit, evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities that undermines their reliability our cognitive capacities. And, as he points out, in so doing, undermines itself. So, as uh, Douglas Grothuis uh, puts it, postmodernism is often presented as a radical departure from modernism. It's like we've had the modernist age, now we leave all that behind for a postmodern way of thinking. A radical departure from modernism. It's often presented that way, so often that it's easy to miss the insight. He says that postmodern is, in many ways, modernism gone to seed. It's ca modernism carried to its logical conclusion and inevitable demise. Or as Dr. Howard Taylor, uh, in a little book I've been reading recently called The Logic of Belief, puts it this way, he says, postmodernism uses reason to show that reason itself, reason in a narrow, scientific, modernistic sense, that reason itself is invalid. But any system which is arrived at by reason and then uses reason to invalidate reason must be self-refuting. Nevertheless, postmodernism is right in saying that there is no room for reason in the modernist stroke atheist worldview. So we could diagram it a bit like this. We had a pre-modernist worldview which was founded, grounded in the concept of a maximally great being, God. A being who is the good, who is the logos, the rationality, and so on. And that worldview gives us support and a favourable attitude towards uh, wisdom and reason and objective purpose and meaning and objective goodness and beauty and truth across all the disciplines. And science as well gave birth to the modern scientific way of doing things. Modernism comes along, grounding itself in an anti theistic, naturalistic worldview. And it wants to be very hot on science. It wants to retain science from its pre-modern birthplace. 
And it wants to retain reason and, and meaning and truth. But it makes this sort of fact-value divide, this axiological postmodernism, which kind of leaves behind objective goodness and beauty and purpose and you know, wisdom is a bit sort of airy-fairy, a bit too platonic and so on, you know. But there is an instability within that way of looking at things that, that means it can't, you can't just consistently stay there with your shallow axiological postmodernism that actually, as many naturalists and atheists themselves argue, you end up being pushed further towards deep postmodernism. The naturalism pushes you towards a deep postmodernism of at least this knowledge-denying form of postmodernism, a truth-denying form of postmodernism. Remember the quote from Bertrand Russell and so on. Um, such that you leave shallow postmodernism behind and really you end up leaving any grounds for having faith in science behind because of the commitment to naturalism, which is what modernism and postmodernism share. So, um, literally, thank God, that it's possible to go back to a pre-modern worldview and to retain all of those things that at least naturalists wanted to retain truth and reason and science. You know, that's good. But it seems that the inner dynamic of trying to do that on a naturalistic basis won't work. And, and so surely the only recourse uh, is to turn the clock back, as it were. As C.S. Lewis famously said, people are always saying, oh, you can't turn the clock back. He says, but, uh, you know, if the time's wrong, maybe that's a very sensible thing to do. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Peter, I think that the market's uh, summarising so much of those three things a complicated issue. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's uh, a high-powered session we have here. Uh, I'm slightly harking back to Keith's talk. Mm. Um, when uh, the question was asked, was people going to lose faith in science? Mm. Um, and I suppose this deep postmodernism thing is a move away from science. Mm. And uh, as an engineer, uh, I'm wondering whether people actually are being failed by technology, not by science. And their actual thing is rejecting technology and moving away in that mm. direction. Mm. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I mean, Keith and his response to the question was highlighting that kind of sociological scepticism, uh, a societal sort of scepticism of, of science, the way in which, particularly from sort of the heyday of the sort of 1950s, when, you know, the Disney's world of the future and science will come and rescue humanity and everything will be wonderful in the future. And, and then you sort of had the A-bomb and global warming and genetic engineering and, and thalidomide and DDT and Vietnam War napalm and actually science can be involved in some very horrible things as well uh, at the start of making people distrustful of it so but that's certainly one level of things and I'll, I'll let Keith jump in again at the, uh, after my second point that's one level of things but I, I'm pointing at, at a philosophical level uh, in the rise of sort of 
postmodern way of thinking of it. It's actually, as we, as we see from some of the quotes, a, a commitment to a, a naturalistic understanding of humanity that drives people towards the scepticism of our ability to know truth and to reason about things and to rely upon science. Yeah, Keith. And I think Lee has actually quite a good point of the difference between science and technology. Uh, and it's one that governments get wrong time after time after time. That science is uh, the, the human um, enterprise that says, I want to know how it works. Mm. Technology is the one that says, how can I exploit that knowledge now? Yeah. So actually the sequencing of the human genome was a technological advance, not a scientific advance. The science for that came several years before as we developed all those methods mm. uh, and the understanding of the way in which DNA is replicated, etc., etc., um, you might even say that the business of landing um, a, a probe on a comet is actually technology mm. that's driven that. From that, we might understand the science. Um, and, and I think governments particularly make that big mistake and they put an equal sum between them. So what can I do with it? Now, mm. That's a different question. It's even harder when you're an engineer because... Because you're in the grubby world of business. Mm. Mm. Well, maybe the priorities ask the question, what can I do with it? That's, yeah, that's yeah what, I know, what I'm saying yeah. is business priorities aren't necessarily where you want to go as an engineer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the university world, Peter, the, the, the real divide for postmodernism mm. is between the science and the arts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, at least certain arts. I mean, I remember my, my day, I, I went to Cardiff University uh, to do a joint degree in English literature and music. Um, and I took philosophy as my subsidiary course for my first year. I, I got uh, part of the reason why I ended up with a single honours degree in philosophy was that I got so annoyed at the postmodernism of my English lecturers, who were writing books and giving lectures, telling me that the author, you know, Roland Barthes, the author, was dead. Texts have no inherent meaning that you can get correct or incorrect when you're trying to interpret it and understand it, <laughs> and yet. If you were to interpret their lectures or their books as not making that claim, that postmodern claim, they would get very annoyed that you had misunderstood them, <laughs> which <laughs> is deeply inconsistent. Um, <laughs> so my uh, English literature essays were becoming philosophical defences of the notion that actually there was such a thing as truth or falsehood in interpretation of the meaning of a text. So, um, so uh, that pushed me uh, towards the philosophy. Now, of course, philosophy part of the humanities. But I remember one day having a, a conversation with one of the philosophy lecturers who uh, was sort of hinting at me, saying, yeah, yeah, those postmodern sort of literary types in the English department, come and, you know, come and join the philosophy department, we're a lot more sensible. <laughs> um, so it's not strictly uh, a sort of sciences-humanities uh, divide, um, but, but, yeah, obviously, uh, it's a lot easier to um, sort of live inconsistently when you're thinking about uh, music and art and, um, and things than when you're doing the applied technology or doing the medicine that people's lives depend on. <laughs> but, but most of my scientific uh, colleagues are inconsistent because there'll be modernists at work where they'll believe in truth and scientific truth yeah. and then turn around and say, well, that's okay for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I'm saying people can espouse a worldview, but they can't live consistently with it. So that's Bill Craig's point of saying, you know, it's literally impossible to have a postmodern society, 
It's certainly possible for people to put forward postmodern views at different levels of depth, um, but they don't necessarily live consistently uh, with those views. Um, yeah. Is it also a matter of culture that uh, brings this in, this thinking in as well, not just through a rational route, but more in mm. what's popular, like for example, individualism, which kind of comes from modernism as well. Yeah. That sort of, you know, if you think of the universe as I'm the center of my universe, well, mm. you get this sort of a bubble. Yeah. And you get into sort of relativism and, and postmodernism. Yeah, sure. I, that way as well. I think, I, I, I think you're right. Well. Yeah. And it gets expressed. Of course, the, the philosophical views get expressed through the arts. Yeah. Uh, and, and so on. And what is the, you know, the, the current in vogue thinking at the university in one generation is the popular art and culture of the next generation. Um, you know, the fact that the new atheists are still, a, still, a, still espousing a sort of scientism that's only one step removed from A.J. Ayer's logical positivism of the 1930s. You know, well, that's partly because a load of them did their studies, their PhD studies at Oxford in the sort of mid in the early latter half of the 20th century under professors who were in Oxford during the heyday of logical positivism. <laughs> uh, they're only one intellectual generation removed uh, from the heyday of that kind of fact-value distinction thinking. So you're saying like, naturalism will automatically sort of go over to postmodernism unless it's surrounded by... Yeah, I, I, I'm arguing that, of course, you can... I'm only, of course, you can live inconsistently with your naturalism, but I, I'm saying those who try and take the, naturalism, the, the modernism and its naturalistic grounding in particular seriously and try and, try and live consistently out of that are driven towards postmodernism. Right. Yeah. So it's not stable, you say, it's the pre-modernism. That, that, that's right. It's, uh, yeah. It's kind of on one you know, pre-modernism with God on the foundation on one side, or actually, you get driven further into postmodernism on the other. Yeah. Yeah. This has an impact enormously on our understanding of Christianity. And you have to push people a bit on the resurrection and to say, well, it's, he's risen for me, but he hasn't risen for you. <laughs> How do you see the issue of yeah. Christians today? Yeah, well, I, I, of course. I mean, I, I think. You know, Craig, I think, is basically right when he, when he says we, we, we live in a culture that remains deeply modernist. Um, and there may be a lip service to a sort of shallow postmodernism. And certain academics and certain people will espouse a deeper postmodernism but not live consistently with it. But most of the questions that I meet from sixth formers when I'm doing school conferences or university students when I'm doing a talk or whatever are questions about truth, with a capital T, whether I'm talking about what the science says or what the philosophy says or what the New Testament literary criticism says or whatever. You know, the, the question is, what does this text say Jesus did? Is it true or not? What are our reasons for thinking that or for doubting it? Um, so that, you know, the, the, the Pauline view of this Christianity business is all founded upon, is it true that Jesus rose from the dead or not? And if he didn't, well, let's all pack it in and go home. <laughs> for most people that's still the question you know the new atheists might have driven them back to thinking that it's, it's academically respectable to ask whether or not Jesus even existed let alone what he claimed about himself and so on but that's still a very you know a, a question of, of truth uh, and 
to be met on those grounds as the original disciples in their proclamation of the Gospels did. They didn't go around saying, you know, I preach Jesus living in my heart because I've got a nice warm cuddly feeling and it's true for me. <laughs> they went around preaching Jesus is risen from the dead and we met him. <laughs> and here is the, is the, the formal creed formalised by the eyewitnesses in Jerusalem. Let me pass it on to you, 1 Corinthians 15 etc. You know, we can know this because he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then to five hundred of the brothers at one time, and, and so on. Thank you.